and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. You are listening to part two of our look at Steptoe and Son, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, please do go back and listen to that first. It is a continuing conversation. We are going to be referring back to things, and we're also halfway through the episode that we're looking at, series three, episode four, Crossed Swords. And that's why we're going to go straight in to halfway through that episode, where our protagonists have gone to a very posh antique store, staffed by Derek Nimmo, no less, and they are going to try and shift their lovely bit of porcelain. So let's see how they get on. So let's let's move on to the next the next act then where they go they move they go to uh, an antique shop to try and well they want to sell the the, the piece don't they and they, they go into the shop and there's a very uh, very posh Derek Nimmo as the the antique dealer. Well, before we can negotiate a price, I I would have to be sure that you came by the piece legitimately. Kick him, Nicky! Slosh him one! Well, really, I promise you. Kick him in the. <laughs> <laughs> Will you shut up for a moment? He has every right to inquire. There, nah, you're too soft, that's your trouble. If that had happened to me in my day, it would have invited to kick up the Khyber at least. <laughs> this is brilliant acting from um, from Harry H. Corbett, because he's caught between these two worlds. He's got his dad literally pulling on his jacket at one end, going, go on, you can get more than that, you can get more than that. And then he's got Derek Nimmo, who is a bit of a prat, to be honest. <laughs> but, it, but he represents that world that Harold aspires to. And there's just yeah. there's, a, there's a great bit of back and forth where he's he's literally t- do you know what it reminded me of? This might make you laugh. It reminded me of Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, where he's yeah. turning from one side to the other, and he's having this he's trying to have a, a very cultured conversation with the with the antique dealer, and he's turning around, he's like, "Shut up, Dad, shut up!" And it was it was very much like that scene in Lord of the Rings where where he's having an argument with himself, Gollum. <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> if that's an appropriate comparison, but it really actually, you know what? I see a lot of Gollum in in Wilfred Bramble. Maybe it's just appearance. But <laughs> there's definitely, and again, that one of the real skills of Wilfred Bramble is he can turn on a sixpence. Like he will go from, I'll go me, oh yeah, what are you doing like that? Like he will just turn like that. And again, making that work is a real skill. But yeah, here, I, I don't want to get too technical here, but I, generally speaking on, on this mm-hmm. show, but there's a really brilliant moment in this scene in, in the antique show. And I want to, I want to mention it from a sort of filmmaking point of view. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really is not appreciated, I guess, in sitcom is uh, the director. Yeah. It, and here, the director is not credited. The director is Duncan Wood, who is credited as a producer, but he's not credited as a director. I'm not exactly sure what the what the process is in terms of rehearsals. I know the writers are there in rehearsals. Yeah. I don't know if there's a director there kind of dealing with the actors. Mm-hmm. TV directors at that time, it's more like, right, where are the camera's looking, where am I putting yeah. things? So I'm not sure in terms of performance. But there's a bit, there's a scene here that I want to point out, which is just a great bit of television. Basically, you've got this, I assume, is a standard three camera setup. So, you know, you've got a central master shot and then you've got a close up from the right, close up mm-hmm. from the left. Yeah. Right? So there's a scene here where Derek Nemo says, I'll give you 200 quid for it. And they're, they're so shocked at such a large amount. They're like, oh my God, you know, 200 quid. 200? <laughs> yeah. And we cut from this sort of main shot to a close-up of Albert, who, like, we... And then, because we've been this close-up, we get this contortion of, like, like his shock at how much money it is. Like, 200? Back to Derek Nimmo. Then a close-up of Harold saying yeah. this sort of thing. 
I see. Moving into those close-ups, it really creates that moment. And then immediately after that, they're arguing, you know, Albert's like, oh, I'll take it, we'll take it. Harold drags him over to the side. Yeah. And we get this shot right from the other side. Yeah. Of them, like, in in conference, like, oh, no, no, I want to get this, I want to get this. But you've still got Derek Nimmo just sort of pottering around in the background. Mm-hmm. And it, but it really creates this space within the set as well. And then the next shot is this very tight two shot of the two of them. Yeah. Harold is literally like gazing into the distance, thinking of money. And uh, Albert's like looking up at him going, greed, it's greed, that's what it is. <laughs> and it's just like that sequence. It's just beautifully filmed. And, and it's not just like stick a camera on, let's see what they're doing. They've made a deliberate choice of when mm-hmm. to go in, when to to move the characters, the blocking. And would that have been done would that have been done as live? Or would that have been several takes edited together? Oh no, it's all live. Yeah, and and yeah. that's that's the trick of this live recording is the rehearsal, obviously. You need your cameramen to know where they're going so that you're in their radio yeah. just going, okay, move Absolutely. to move to a wide position. But also the actors need to hit their marks. It's really interesting that because I, I can appreciate that now you've told me. But it's yeah. not something that I am really conscious of when I'm watching. I don't have that sort of film background that you do. And, and bluntly, I'm not noticing that sort of thing. But, mm. but it adds to the, uh, the overall perception of the quality of the show. You know? Oh, definitely, yeah. Oh, without, yeah. Without me actually noticing the joins. I, I, yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's obviously the way, it's not just the way he acts it. It's the way the film was put together that, yeah. that creates that. Yeah, it is. It's not conscious. I was I watched this the first time and didn't think anything. It was because I was sort of writing down detailed notes for this <laughs> that I kind of really picked up on it. But yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a really beautiful bit of film work there. Hello, listeners. It's Alan from the future here. I'm popping in here to say uh, that scene I just talked about it grabbed me so much that I, I had to do something more with it, and I, I didn't feel like I could fully explain it in a podcast format. So uh, I've done a video on our YouTube channel, which uh, breaks it down a bit and really breaks down the camera movement and how they did it, and obviously it has the visual component as well. So uh, do go and watch that. It's really quite interesting, and uh, if you're interested in the, the filming process... Uh, and even if you're not, um, it, it may kind of show a different side to you that you don't usually think about. It could be interesting. So go to our YouTube channel. It's British Sitcom History. That's the name of the YouTube channel. Or search for Steptoe and Son Scene Analysis or, or something like that. You'll find it. Uh, and uh, yeah, go and check that out. Okay, uh, back to the show. Can I, can I highlight a couple of lovely bits of uh, Harold dialogue? When he's talking oh, yeah. to Derek Nimmo, he talks about the person who says, we have brung it along in order that you may purport to have a butcher's at it. <laughs> That's a beautiful line. Yeah, I, you might know the film technical bits. I like the words. That That is a beautiful <laughs> bit of writing. And then he's, yeah. he's, he says later on, oh, I'm sorry about my father. He gets right on my bristles, he does. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I mean, that would have been hilarious in 1964, but it's still funny. <laughs> and done with that posh accent, like he's trying to do yeah, it. Yeah, he's he really help doing his best. Yeah. Fall into the vernacular, yeah. It, it is great. And of course, Albert has no such pretensions. Yeah, there's a, there's a, bit, of, there's a bit of 1960s racism there, isn't there? Where he's, he's talking about going for some lunch. And they're up west. It's all foreigners up here, except the poor devils what work for them. You know, so that's a little <laughs> bit of uh, social commentary for yeah, 1960s. a bit of xenophobia. And yeah. the interesting, and but interesting that you know Harold P 
picks him up on it. It's not a simple, like, oh, yeah, he's like... Harold, it, it, they use it to create the conflict between the two of them. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, obviously we've just, we're coming off of a Brexit thing here at the moment and it, it seemed so relevant. <laughs> like, you know, that's the sort of argument you would have with the older yeah. generation yeah. about some kind of sort of vague xenophobia that they have based on some half-truths and, and, mm-hmm. and just their kind of limited observations. Yeah. Uh, it feels completely uh, relevant even even today. And that's a, that happens a lot. There's a lot of stuff in there with um, Albert being xenophobic, particularly occasionally straight into racism. But it's it's more about the other, you know, rather than yeah. any particular race. And that, and, and that goes back to this idea of Harold wanting to be part of a bigger world, and Albert's quite happy in his sm- in his yard, mm. where everyone is the other, and so yeah. and so therefore he's a lot more comfortable with that idea of xenophobia and. Or, or homophobia, whereas for, for for Harold, those others represent the bigger world. He wants to be part of that world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm. So let's let's go on to the last scene. So so Denik Denik two hundred and fifty quid, and Albert just says he should take it, but Harold thinks, oh, we can get more than that at auction. If he wants to pay two fifty, it must be worth a lot more than that. Yeah. So then we cut straight to an auction house. There's no, there's no sort of, there's no sort of interstitial scene between it. We just go straight from that conversation to an auction. And this is again, this is this is a great bit of physical comedy. You know, we see we see these all these posh people doing their exaggerated winks and ticks to bid on the. Yeah. And, Do you and, know what I I was thinking? Right, that whole concept of an eyebrow twitch to bid and how small it can be and stuff. I only know that from sitcoms. I don't know if that's like a realistic <laughs> thing. I've never Certainly, been to an auction. <laughs> I've never been to an auction, but any sort of auction stuff I've seen, you know, I've watched Bargain Hunt and stuff like that. You've always got like a little paddle with a number on it, making a nice clear sign. This is me. Yeah, I'm yeah. bidding. And that's what you want. You want to know who's bidding and... No and ambiguity. Where. Yeah. <laughs> so I, No humour to be derived from someone sneezing and accidentally <laughs> bidding. That's not the real world. We don't want that. We want a clear it's a classic sitcom trope, isn't it? You know, that's... I, I don't know if that's realistic. Maybe it's an old-fashioned thing where it's like... Maybe it's, it's very... a, You know, in, in, in an auction, you're going to have, I don't know, 20 or 30 lots. And each one, you're only going to have two or three people bidding for it. So perhaps at the start of the auction, they, they make a clear yeah. physical gesture. And then after that, the auctioneer is just glancing at those two or three people. And so, yeah. you know, the, the, the nod and the wink has to be relatively small. But it reminds me of, I guess, it, have you ever been in a casino? Like people playing blackjack and stuff. Yeah. When, they want, when they want another card, it's like, they, the they can't just go, oh yeah, another move. one, please. <laughs> it's like it's it's like it means you know what you're doing if you if you're like that. It's like you're, it makes you exactly part of like yeah. yeah James I'm Bond never of. shouts twist, does he? <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I noticed about this scene, which is an odd thing, we we have the classic auction setup where there's a guy going, okay, and and, and two hundred guineas, two hundred fifty guineas, okay, sold, bang the gavel, right? Yeah, we're immediately going, okay, we're in an auction, and the guy sells something. We understand how it works. So then, little scene with Harold, and we cut back to, now it's their lot up, and it's a different auctioneer. Oh, I didn't notice that. It's a different actor. And the other, and the previous auctioneer is like sat behind him. And I don't know why you would bother doing that. That's <laughs> like, why? I wonder if that's a thing in the real world, where they can only do one, like they have to hand, like, like football commentators, they have to hand over halfway because they're so knackered. But even, <laughs> even if it was, even if, I don't even think if that it is was real, case, then why bother get a second why, actor in? Yeah, you're paying two actors there, speaking lines. And I, I, I mean, I can only assume maybe it was a cut scene or something that ended up that was in the script for some reason. I don't know. I, I can't explain it, but it was just I noticed it, and I, I don't know what that is. If anybody knows, <laughs> that'd be interesting. Yeah. Uh, the the lot goes up, and 
it's not quite going high enough, so Harold decides to bid on it himself to kind of push the other bidders. And it's pretty obvious where that's going to go. <laughs> yeah. Basically, he's stuck with it. He, the other guy's not bidding, and he's going to accidentally buy his own thing. <laughs> he gets rescued because someone else puts a bid on it. He's like, phew. Cut to back in the yard. You stupid old man. <laughs> Why did you? Uh, but it's great because it means it gets to blame Albert. He's made the mistake, but he gets to blame Albert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So the final coda to this episode is Harold is just frustrated and sick of it. So he's just like, I'm going to bed. He goes off up the stairs. There's a crash and he comes down. Of course, Albert's dropped his priceless figurine, which of course he could still sell and, and make a profit yeah, on, even though he's lost money at the auction. And this is, again, classic Wilfred Bramble. You can tell the difference when he's playing genuine sorrow and like he reels really bad about something and when he's doing it yeah. to guilt trip Harold. And in this scene, he goes literally goes from one to the other. I'm sorry, Harold. It wasn't my fault. I dropped it. It's the only piece I ever had. Got a bit dirty from all the handling I've been having. I thought I'd wash it for you and it slipped through my fingers. It's me arthritis and me knuckles. I can't hold things like I used to be able to. And I... Harold. I've lost your temper. I'll get some glue, stick it together. We might still get a few bob for it. They're both subtle. It's not like stupid cartoonish, but you can tell the difference. And I think that's a really important part of the character because when he feels bad, you believe it. Yeah. And you you see the guilt. You see the, the sorrow. Yes. One last thing I wanted to mention. At the end of this episode, Harold's chasing after him with a sword. <laughs> Pretty comedy thing. But Albert runs back to the toilet and he's trapped in the toilet while Harold stabs swords yeah, yeah. through at him. And I love that. It's like we, we end to our beginning. You know, it's we he's trapped in the toilet again. Yeah, and that's that's nice writing. I think I like mm-hmm. I look like that. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to mention and, that. and good physical comedy for the credits to roll over. Yeah, exactly. You got like forty five seconds to deal with. Yeah. And again, Wilfred Rumble just screaming for forty seconds is is great. <laughs> well, shall we? I think we we sort of wrung all the juice out of that episode. So shall we talk <laughs> about? Um, shall we talk about kind of what happened afterwards to the to the stars and the writers and the production and, and so on. Yeah, the late the later series, obviously, there was a sort of a, a hiatus there, and mm-hmm. Harry H. Corbett did a couple of shows. Um, he did a show called Mister H, which was, which was written for him. It was a character called Harry H, and I, 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 I can't, I haven't seen it. It doesn't survive, but it was, you know, there's episodes written by Golden Simpson, some re- episodes written by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, who we'll, we'll be deal, dealing with at some point in the future, no doubt. Yep. Great writers, but it, it didn't do anything and, and, and didn't do much. So ultimately, you know, we, a few years down the line, it's just like, well, should we do step two again then? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I guess that's what we're going to do. Uh, and Wilfred Bramble, at one point, I think it was probably around this time, series four, he got a, he got a part in a Broadway musical called Kelly. And, you know, a major part, went to New York and, and was going to do wow. that. And so... They weren't going to do another series, or they were talking about ways of reworking it without Albert in it. Hmm. Um, which I, I don't think those plans got much further than the kind of drawing board. But the idea was to have, you know, Albert dies, and then Harold is at home on his own, and this yeah. young lad of eighteen knocks on the door and right. is like, "Hello, I'm your son." Yeah. 
which actually I think would be quite a nice concept and then shifting Harold to yeah. their father character. I, I can see how that would work. But it never, I don't think it ever got f- much past the planning stage because the show that Wilfred Bramble was in, which is called Kelly, is one of the most infamous flops of all time <laughs> in Broadway history. Oh, and... Uh, ran for one performance and closed down. Oh, <laughs> so, God, really? Yeah. Um, so that so, compared to his entire Broadway career. Yeah, and he moved back to Just London and, and did Steptoe. Oh, which is an interesting, like, how different things could work out. Yeah. If that had been, you know, Starlight Express or something. <laughs> Cats. <laughs> but yeah, they both released records, not officially in character. in character. Okay, right. Yeah, not officially, but yeah, basically singing about Rag and bone men. There's a beaten up Joe and a gun for seven and a tanner and a candelabra goes for a bob. And there's a row of lovely velvet and a Kaiser slinking helmet and a television. All you need to know. There's a stack of Dresden China and a model ocean liner and a pair of stays to fit your blinking band. There's a rusty chest expander and a moffy giant panda on a leg drum rag around band. And I think that was just a thing that happened at the time. Like, yeah. your populous artists would, re- you know... And I think they were, you know, reasonably popular as, like, novelty records, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> then there's the second batch in the 70s. The The show is remarkably consistent over such a long period of time. Mm-hmm. 12 years altogether it ran for. And it is high quality throughout. I think in those later episodes, it's just like... It feels like we're just trudging over the same material... There's yeah. certain plot outlines that are basically the same. Harold meets a girl and he's going to move out, and then yeah. Albert finds a way to stop him. Harold wants to go on holiday on his own. And he can't, you know. It's kind yeah. of you're seeing the same things, but yeah, it, it it's still good. And in fact, those later series, perhaps because they got repeated more, are some of the more remembered ones. There's two episodes in series seven, like that went back to back, called "Divided They Stand" and um, "The Desperate Hours." Yeah, divided they both classic episodes and. Possibly two of the most popular episodes in terms of the general fandom, and they're but they're really different. So you've got "Divided We Stand," which is a classic sort of sitcom setup, just this high concept. Harold's sick of Albert, so he partitions the house and he builds a wall down. I know this one. I know this one. It's a classic, and it's been done a lot. You know, sellotape down the floor and separating Uh people. And it is a great episode, but it's a sitcom episode, and there's loads of physical comedy in it. And you know, with the TV, they've already got the argument for TV. TV yeah. and it is a Albert's great. Albert's got episode. the knobs on his side, so he can change <laughs> <Exactly>. the channel. <laughs> it plays into all their character stuff, but it's plot driven. And then you've got the Desperate Hours, which is basically they're stuck at home. It's freezing cold. They haven't paid the bill, so the heating's gone off. And two convicts who have escaped from Wormwood Scrubs come along, uh, and it's a mirror of them. You know, it's, it's Leonard Rossiter who's playing like the younger guy and then mm-hmm. this older guy with him who's like this burden on him and he's having a, he's trying to escape but he's got to deal with him as well yeah it's not even it's not played particularly subtly subtly it's it's, it's a mirror between these two sure. people but a, a great concept again mm. but it's really dialogue driven it's just about the talk in fact leonard ruster and the other guy jg devlin they don't turn up till about 12 minutes into the episode the first bit is just harold and albert talking to each other and moaning yeah. about cold and stuff and that's something we do a lot in fact you see a little bit in this episode we looked at where harold is telling the story of how he got the piece uh, yeah. meeting the old yeah and this is something they used a lot where it's basically harold 
monologuing essentially and you'll see with these bits of dialogue between them it's 90 percent harold right. and i that i think the writers picked up on the fact wilfrey bramble was not particularly strong at learning the lines <laughs> uh, and it was so he was a he was a drinker right he was an alcoholic Yes, uh, and it was becoming increasingly a problem as they went later on. But you'll see, even in early episodes, because I say these are basically recorded as live, you'll see him stumbling over lines quite a lot, mm-hmm. much more than you're kind of used to seeing on TV. A little bit of um, life story of Wilfred Brambo I like to touch upon, because he there's a, a, a big scandal in his, mm, uh, yes. in his history. Tell us about that. I know about this. Go on. And it's an interesting story, and I think it sort of places it in, a, in, a, in its time. Well, first of all, uh, Wilfred Bramble was actually married at one point. Um, just after the war, he married a fellow actor, and um, they lived together for several years. And she got pregnant, and then it turned out that the father was their lodger, right. and not him. And so he immediately kind of left, and they got divorced, and he never saw her again, I think. And certainly that seemed to have a pretty massive emotional toll on him. But it also seems that after that point, he was uh, exclusively homosexual in his relationships. Now, I can't speak for, was he bisexual or was he was she a beard or whatever? It doesn't really matter. The point was, being homosexual was illegal at the time. Yeah. And at the height of his fame, after the first series of Steptonson went out, he was very famous, obviously, suddenly overnight. And just as they were getting ready for the second series, he was arrested in a public toilet in, in Shepherd's Bush for, uh, what was it? what's the phrase? Importuning, I think, mm. is the phrase. Yeah. Uh, but basically it means, Gross you know. Decency. Trying to get, trying to get a bit of uh, business in the, in the public toilets from yeah. another gentleman. And now I I looked into this. I, I don't know if you knew knew anything about this. Yeah, a little bit. I, I I was curious as to why this didn't ruin him. You know. Yeah. Firstly, it was against the law, but secondly, just in terms of you know his reputation. Hmm. And certainly, if you wanna if you wanna get a gauge of how homosexuality was perceived. At the time, watch Steptoe and Son because you know they touch on it a lot. Uh, yeah. and uh, it's quite a lot of homophobia in there. And Albert Steptoe himself is very homophobic. Yeah, and and there is a sort of knowing Wilfred Bramble's history, there is a certain irony to that. In a retrospect, going, oh yeah, he was actually gay, and obviously it was secret at the time. But the fact that he was arrested for it, it must have been a known thing at the time. Mm-hmm. Surely viewers would have put it into that context. It, it, it's a strange thing to consider, but. It's important to note that he strongly denied it. Uh, he was arrested and ultimately charged with, with this offence and was given a kind of slap on the wrist, really, from what I could tell. He yeah. paid the court costs and was bound over for a year or whatever it is, you know, stay out of trouble. And also, the press kind of gave him an easy ride of it. Um, didn't make big headline news out of it. And do we think that's just because he was a beloved person? And they didn't want to ruin him? Definitely part of it. When you hear the explanation of what actually happened, is it's not like you know they walked in on him with his trousers down with another fella in the cubicle. What happened was they had undercover police knocking around mm-hmm. these toilets because it was a common thing. Yeah, and he came in and basically looked him up and down, gave him the eye, a little bit of a maybe a at best a bit of a suggestive nod or something, and they went right, your nick, mate. Some and that's what came up in court. It's like nothing happened. Right. And his defense was, I was going to the toilet. <laughs> and, you know, so they said you went to the... public opinion, he could, he could, he could yeah. get away with it. He could, he could not be guilty. 
I mean, like, from the police evidence, you know, he went to the toilet, yes, four times in 20 minutes and spent a long time in there and was looking at people. And, and I'm sure he was up to something, you know, I don't think... And it's easy to say that in retrospect, knowing he's gay, sort of going, oh, well, of course he was up to that. But who knows? We're talking but, about in the context of the time, I'm, I'm trying not to say anything too controversial, but in 1962, people would have thought that was disgusting. Yeah, but they wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. They wanted to believe that the police had stitched him up because they liked him. Yeah, and and it's because he was famous. They were like, oh yeah, we'll have a, we'll have him because he's well known. And so there was a certain level of plausible deniability, I suppose. And I think the press gave him the benefit of the doubt on the basis that they could tell the police would not exactly entrapment, but certainly went mm. for him. You know, they were they were. There, there was him. a there was a move in the in the fifties, I suppose, the early sixties. Where, where the police went out of their way to try and catch people. I think, I think you know, until then, it had been, yeah, it was against the law, but it wasn't really a big deal. They just sort of live and let live. I'm not really mm. sure why, but after the war, there was a definite move to try and, well, entrap people is probably the wrong word legally, but, but yeah, to yeah. try and arrest more people. But, but this, was, this was also, 1962 was after the Wolfenden Report. So the Wolfenden Report was in 1957, and this was uh, where a parliamentary inquiry into this, uh, it was, the, the title was A Report on Homosexual Offences and Prostitution. There you go. Right. And that, that report had recommended that um, homosexuality should be legalised between content, consenting adults. But that was 1957, but it didn't actually come into law. The law wasn't changed until uh, 1967. Yeah. So, you know, 1957 was a Tory government. Macmillan didn't want to go anywhere near it. And it really took the Labour government coming in in the late 60s to, to, you know, it was a great reforming government that Roy Jenkins was the Home Secretary. They brought in, they changed abortion rights and made divorce easier and censorship in the West End was changed. And this was just mm -hmm. part of that. It was a great reforming government, really. But I, I, I looked at, I looked at, so it's 1965, so this is before uh, legalisation, there was an opinion poll and 63% of people said that homosexuality shouldn't be a crime. But... 93% said that homosexual men were in need of medical or psychiatric treatment. So, <laughs> so whilst there was, a, there was a move in the 60s to say, okay, people don't need to be thrown in prison for this anymore, it was still seen as wrong, as an aberration. You know, I, 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 I lifted some quotes here from the parliamentary debate on the actual act. So this is when it was legalised, 1967. And, you know, you've got... The Earl of Dudley, who was talking against it, said, Homosexuals are the most disgusting people in the world. Prison is much too good a place for them. So that was, you know, that was the case against. And, yeah. and cl but clearly it was okay for someone to say that in the House of Lords. Yeah, yeah. Roy Jenkins, who was obviously advocating for the law to change, said, Those who suffer from this disability carry a great weight of shame all their lives. Mm. So, yes, the law was changed. Yes, people stopped being sent to prison. But clearly the taboo was still very much yeah. there for quite a long time. What I was reading about it, um, it seemed to suggest, because basically he went from court to rehearsals for Steptoe. <laughs> <laughs> like it was the second series was, was about to go out. And certainly from what I read, it, it implied that he went out to, rec to record this episode. And as he walked onto stage, if the crowd cheered, it was going to be all right. And if they sort of jeered and heckled him, his career was over. Yeah. Uh, that's like how the BBC were looking at it. Like, can we ride this or do we have to shove him off? Mm -hmm. And the crowd cheered and uh, that, that was that was fine. But he was at the height of his popularity. Like this yeah. was just after series one, you know, and I think that helped. I think that, that makes yeah. a big difference. 
but it's also the reason they went after him. You know, if he wasn't famous, sure. they might have just gone, oh, he's just an old fellow, let him go. He used to travel to Hong Kong, um, which apparently in the time, the 70s, the, the choice destination for mm. particularly kind of older homosexual men, because there's lots of young boys around there and it was culturally just a bit more okay. I don't know if it was strictly legal, but it was certainly yeah. kind of just let let go. And at some point, he 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 got some young Malayan man uh, back with him and, and had him living in his flat. Uh, certainly to public, it was his valet. Right. Um, but, you know, lived with him for 20 years until he died, I think. So that seemed to be a situation that worked for him. But let's, let's, shall we, let's, let's talk about how his alcoholism affected his ability to do his job and how, mm-hmm. that, how that affected the relationship between him and Harry H. Corbett. Yeah, I mean, there's basically where, where they ended up after, after the series finished. The series finished in 74. It was Christmas special in 74. But they did end up going on a tour of Australia in 1977 mm-hmm. and it does feel like in the story of Steptoe and Son this is like the lowest ebb yeah from what I understand it was like a 45 minute show it was much more kind of musical kind of variety stuff and it was like breaking the fourth wall so it was Harold would come out and go oh hey I've I've left I've left Albert I've come to Australia to be a, an actor or entertainer or something and then of course Albert turns up like where have you been and and mm-hmm. so they have to deal with each other and it's like it's gags i've heard a recording of at least some of it and there's it, yeah he's like harold step the guy oh yeah you, you'll have to hear this one here right so a bloke walks into a bar you know it's kind of like that sort of thing so would galton the simpson have been involved in that then i don't know i honestly don't know there's i don't think so because i haven't seen it said anywhere that they wrote it so i suspect not mm, okay and you know they do they end up doing like a knees up and a sing song with the audience and stuff it's and but it sounds like <laughs> Though these guys were traveling around Australia for a year, doing eight shows a week and touring and traveling all the time, a crap show that they weren't really like, you know, happy about. Wilfred Bramble was just an outrageous alcoholic by the time by this point, yeah. and I think Harry H. Corbett was just sick of it all. Frustrate. I think that's the sense I get from things you read about Harry H. Corbett in his late career is frustration. Yeah, he'd been typecast and he he just couldn't get away from it. Yeah. And it's a shame. It's, it's sad. I, I think Wilfred Bramble was less bothered by that. I think he would happily have traded on that mm. for for what, however long he could last. But the drinking meant that he wasn't professional. He wasn't. He, couldn't, he wasn't reliable. Yeah, or, or just not turn up or oh, turn right, up drunk okay, yeah. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. There's um, a documentary that was made in 2002 called "When Steptoe Met Son," and uh, that kind of looks at all that in detail. And certainly in the sort of the world of Steptoe and Son fandom, it, it's considered that there's truth there, but they've taken all these negative aspects and made that a story. Yeah. 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 And because it, there's talk as if they never liked each other or they always hated each other. And it definitely seems like they did not have anything in common at all, the two actors. They, they had totally out. different lifestyles and they yeah. did not hang out. But that is not that does not mean they hated each other. And they have very different acting styles, which occasionally caused a little bit of conflict, but nothing too serious, as far as I can tell. Certainly the way Galton Simpson, for example, tell it. And perhaps on this tour in Australia, where they were both a little bit kind of lower and they were just stuck with each other for yeah, longer. living together as well. Yeah, tour that tension. That's, that's to be expected, really. So I don't know if there's any... They the documentary talks as if they kind of completely hated each other. I don't know quite how true that is, but I suspect Harry Corbett was completely sick of Wilfred Bramble. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there was a dramatization in two thousand eight, 
with Jason Isaacs and Phil Davis called The Curse of Steptoe. I, I've seen that. I remember that, yeah. Which basically takes that idea and ramps it up to like the mm-hmm. extreme. And it, I believe that, that the writer who's done that, The Curse of Steptoe, has probably taken all these elements of truth but then just totally focused on one side of it. Yeah. And, and and I'm sure there was little arguments and stuff. And uh, But it, it doesn't feel like an accurate representation of these two people. Certainly, like Wilf, the Wilfred Bramble character in that, played by Phil Davis, is just morose all the time, like never mm. smiles. But Wilfred Bramble, he was kind of a small, lonely man, from what I can tell. But when he was drunk, he was a exuberant drunk. He was the life and soul. Yeah, to whether you liked it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to a fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly, in the world of Stepton Son fan circles, those things are not particularly well appreciated. And and Harry Corbett, Harry H. Corbett's family made a lot of complaints. In fact, right. that the curse of Stepto it seemed to change the BBC's policy on representing real people. Oh, I see. They had such problems with it. They they sort of put out an edited version, and then they kind of they stopped it from being released on DVD and changed their internal policies about it. Kind of as a backlash to that. But this was in 2008. It was kind of at the time where BBC was going through this whole thing. I think they'd, you know, the whole like phone-in things that had been uh, fake and, and, oh, and yes. scout and stuff yeah. like that. It was like all that period and they were so being really paranoid. tight on like everything has to be true and honest mm-hmm. and, and real, you know. But yeah, those are the kind of the, the legacy of of Steptoe. What about the legacy of of the show? Uh, we, you mentioned earlier Sanford and Son, so we can talk a little bit about that, which was the American version. Yeah. But then let's also talk about how you think it's influenced other sitcoms. Well, Sanford and Son was made in the early 70s, 70, 71, 72 to about 75, I think. It ran for about five years. And it's a straightforward remake, really. It's a father and son scrap dealers. They have a, a van, like this old beat-up truck, Right, rather than a horse and cart. But it's the same principle, you know, they're really working class. They're black as well, which in America, of course, means working class. I think that's the the, the class The class system doesn't quite translate to America, so it's easier to yeah. analogue it to race, isn't it? Yeah. I watched an episode of it. I watched the first episode. Well, I watched it as how... well. You sent me a link to it, and I watched oh, yeah. it as well. And I was fascinated that it was more or less a shot-for-shot remake of, of, cross- of, of the episode that we've been talking yes. about. Now, I, I picked to do Cross Swords before I realised that, but it does make for a nice comparison. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, it was great. So, but but what, what was interesting to me was two things. Number one, it was a straight copy. But number two, mm-hmm. why pick that particular episode? Why not the yeah. pilot if you're going to do a... Well, it does have aspects of the pilot in the sense mm-hmm. of, you know, yeah. to set up the characters. But then that means that they have to get the Cross Swords plot into a tighter time frame. Yeah. And it really loses a lot of pace because of it. But it, but it takes the same, you know, it goes to the same, you, you have the, the antique dealer, then you have yeah. the auction in just the same way. Yeah. But yeah, I, 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 it felt like a lesser copy. I don't know if that's yeah. just prejudice, like, you know, the British one's better than the original. But, but yes, it didn't feel as good. Where did you get this? What's it to you? <laughs> Why do you ask? Well, you think we're thieves? Think we stole it? Give him one, Lamont. Give him one across his lips. <laughs> Well, you don't have to worry. You see, I purchased that item from a woman in Hollywood, and if you want her address, I'll be glad to give it to you. Well, I wouldn't. I'd be glad to give him one across his lips. <laughs> I think there's there's two major differences. If if the things we say are really great about Stepton Son are the writing and the performers, the writing, obviously it's the same. They've taken the script, but it's not the same. And Golden Simpson often talk about the very precise nature of their writing. Hmm. And this has taken the general gist of the dialogue and changed it. 
yeah. they've re- retooled it for American language, but also they've had to shorten it or it's just not coming. But, you know, there's those specific, when you were giving me lines earlier from Harold, like the yeah. way he's speaking, you know, those words are perfectly crafted for a reason, yeah. you know, and this is what Golden Simpson did. They, they honed every word. Right. And that's just lost here. And so it loses the pacing of it. I think that Red Fox, who plays Sanford, the older Sanford, who's, yeah. you know, a very he was a famous comedian, and yeah. then he's famous for this as well. He's not good. He's, he's just, it's all one note. It's all at the same level. And where we're talking about Wilfred Bramble's just going up and down all over the place. Yeah, he's just a grumpy old man, and but that's it. Yeah, exactly. And even, like, I... I can't. I, I prefer the younger guy here, uh, Damon Wilson. I think. He's yeah, called. I don't know him. I I didn't recognize his name. I didn't recognize his face. I don't know him from anything else. Yeah, I think he's known for this. And 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 it's worth knowing. Like Sanford and Son is not played in Britain. It's not a known thing over here. It's but it's a big American show. Yeah. So this is the first I'd seen of it. But yeah, there's it just lacks care. Like he's, you know how in the episode we watched, Harold is like. Of, on this the statue and he's like oh my god like don't touch it and then like he's 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 delicately kind of mm-hmm. right there's a couple of times where the sanford son character he's looking at the bottom of the thing to see the marks on the statue and he just like bangs it on the table like yeah. just in the kind of live he's not meaning to do it but like it just taps on the table it's like you're supposed to be handling this delicately and that's the difference in terms of performance yeah. in that the character is like, oh, I, dare, I barely even dare touch this as mm-hmm. opposed to just get up, look at the bottom and say the lines. Yeah, Little that's details like that. Interesting. And I, I did also watch, I just picked a random episode from later on in the series to well, see how it So developed. I was going to ask, you know, like with the, like the Office is the one that's off-quoted more recently yeah. where, where they, they, they translated it to America and they... They might have taken some of the elements initially, but then they went off and did their own thing. So with Sanford yeah. and Son, that's clearly a remake of that episode. Is that a one-off? Yes. Or did they did they just write their own stuff after that? Or did they crib other episodes of Steptoe? They they remade, or to some extent, 13 episodes, I think, which is probably the first run. Mm. And then after that, kind of went off on their own thing and brought in lots of ancillary characters. Right. So, you know, Sanford has a couple of drinking buddies who comes along. His sister-in-law is a regular character and she's a pain okay. in the ass. You know, all that sort of thing. And I, so I randomly picked an episode from like series six or something. It was like one of the later ones. I thought, mm. let's see what happened to it. And it was poor. It was really poor. Um, they really focus on the older Sanford as the central character and the son is basically just there as a foil. Okay, so that's because Red Fox was the comedian, that he was the the popular one, I guess. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. But he's still not playing anything with any great skill. And certainly in the episode I watched, he was reading from cue cards, and not subtly at all, like not even looking anywhere near the other characters. He was just like... Uh like It doesn't even feel like they'd thought about where the cue cards should be put. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, yeah, and it looks poor, and he's. And he, I can't judge too much. I just watched a random episode, but oh, yeah, did not look good. Yeah. I, I, they, I, I read. I didn't see any of this, but I read that in later series that um, they introduced a character played by Pat Morita, yeah, uh, called Archu. Oh God! So that I think that should probably give you some indication <laughs> of the level they were working at. <laughs> So there you go. So what about what about other other legacy of Steptoe and Son uh, on on British sitcoms? Well, 
it's had a big impact, and and I think you look you look at things now, and certainly you don't see the level of pathos as we talked about, and the level of emotion. But mm. you will often have sitcommy sitcoms which will have an episode where they really focus in on some emotional character thing, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, that's always the, that's the best episode." Yeah, uh, certainly in terms of more direct influence, John Sullivan has cited this as an influence for Only Fools and Horses. Mm-hmm. And you can see a lot of that in terms of working class kind of like scrapping together to try and make a living. The younger one, one aspiring for more, you know, he's got yeah. his art GCE, he wants to get away and yeah. uh, and do better, but he's kind of held back. Definitely a lot of um, connections there. And you, you'll see it in occasional plot lines as well, like where it's like, oh, that's a plot. That's basically the plot from Stepson, you know, but yes. completely retooled and reworked. Yeah. Uh, and I want to do a little a kind of little sidebar here. Um, yeah. About uh, about Beryl Virtue. I don't know if the name Beryl Virtue means anything to you. The name is familiar, but you're gonna have to tell me a lot more. I, I can't. Yeah, it's a name you probably see on the end credits of things a lot. Uh, she was well, she was a friend, uh, a childhood friend of Alan Simpson. Like she went to school with him. They, they, so uh, Goldman Simpson in the, in the late fifties, they set up a, a, a kind of co op agency called Associated London Scripts with. Um, Spike Milligan and Eric Sykes. It was just like, right, let's all kind of work together. We hire an office together, and okay, but it just meant they could share the resources. And so, when they set up this agency, they uh, needed a secretary, and so they contacted her and 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 said, uh, "Come and do this job for us," which eventually she did. So she was, you know, typing up the scripts they've written and that sort of thing. Then at some point, they they needed to discuss the new contracts with the BBC, and so they were like. Beryl, call the BBC and negotiate as a contract. <laughs> so right. she was like, "What? Well, I don't know how to do that. Did it. And then kind of over a, a short period of time became the de facto agent for these guys. Right, right. And, you know, other other writers joined them. Johnny Spate became a writer for them uh-huh. and, 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 all, and, yeah. and other John Antrobus, I think. So she became an agent, basically, and then just became a very powerful and successful agent. Yeah. And eventually sort of segued that into being a producer because... Marvelous. She spearheaded the concept of selling British sitcoms to America, but not in the sense of like "Till Death Us Do Part" can't play over in America because you can't understand what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but in terms of here's the concept, buy the concept, and right. so you got Sanford and Son and um, so many remakes of it in, mm. in America of stuff from the '60s and '70s in Britain. It's something we'll be dealing with again and again, I'm sure. But through that, she kind of ended up being the producer, and, and you'll see her name a lot on all sorts of stuff. She ended up creating her own uh, production company called Hartswood Films, I think. Uh, they did things like Men Behaving Badly was a particularly big hit in the 90s, and, and you know, lots of stuff. You'll see them all over the place. And in fact, she's now, she's she's actually one of the few people we're going to talk about today who is still alive um, <laughs> as of recording. I think she's yeah. about 90. I just wanted to highlight her because she is actually a real major player in, in the world of British sitcom and its success and the fact that you've got people like Galton Simpson making really good money. <laughs> yeah. Step to and Son has been made in not just in America, but also there's a Scandinavian version, uh, there's a Dutch version, there's a South African version. Right. I think they've made a lot of money off it, you know, <laughs> like they're, sure. as the, as the yeah. writers, they're yeah. the ones getting the residuals for all that so yeah in terms of influence 
you don't see a lot of things like Steptoe and Son anymore. So in terms of a legacy in that sense, an influence in that sense, it's more been converted, you know, into more sitcom-y processes. But you will get those episodes. Like, an obvious episode that jumps to mind for me is Red Dwarf Marooned, which is a bit of a classic Red Dwarf episode. I know episode the one, where... yeah. So whether there's just Rimmer and Lister and it's a bit of a, a, a bottle episode, whether, yeah, he ends, up, he ends up burning his guitar. I remember it well. That's it, yeah. And that always reminds me so and that's one of the best remembered episodes because when they really get into character and they and you you really get to play with these characters and, and it's not just dealing with some silly plot and and the, there's that pathos there as well yeah you know it's not just gags it's it, you know their their mm. their relationship changes and you know there's there's a lot of sadness there's reminiscence yes yeah. yeah i think it's a good comparison and i think you see that a lot in a lot of sitcoms where they'll do the bottle episode and it's like they're really focusing like porridge did an episode that is it's called a night in, is it? Or something like that. But it's just the two of them in their in the cell. cell. And, you know, Porridge is, a, you know, those two main characters. Their plot always revolves around them, but there's lots of ancillary characters. And that episode was just the two of them talking. And I think that's a direct influence, whereas Steptoe and Son did that all the time. Even if they mm, didn't do a full... That would be like the first 10, 10 minutes of an episode before you do a bit of yeah. plot. And that's really impressive, but it must be so difficult to write that stuff. Very much so. So yeah, in terms of kind of what what happened next, you know, you got Galton Simpson. They're known for Hancock and Steptoe and Son. They never really did. They did do other things, but certainly not remembered in the same sense. Alan Simpson actually retired in 1978 and and stopped writing. Uh, he was still you know fairly young at the time. I, I I got the impression just from kind of half said things in interviews. You know, he had some personal things going on. Uh, in his personal life and he just sort of went like you know what I don't need the pressure of writing and creating so he retired and like I said I think he did like the after dinner speaker tour he's the talker of the two Mm -hmm. Um, Ray Galton continued writing and and worked with other writers a lot uh, but never just never had the same success so they are Galton and Simpson still alive did you say no, they both died only in the last couple of years. So 2018, 2017, I think they, they, they went off. But apparently were friends to the end, lived quite close to each other, saw each other all the time, which is nice. It's nice to know that. that they, it's nice to hear that sort of story. Yeah. And uh, there is another uh, direct legacy of the Steptoe story. They, there was a, a play, a stage play, called uh, Murderer Oil Drum Lane. Now, this was written in, well, it was put out, it was put on in 2005. Uh-huh. And it was official. It was an official thing. It was written by Ray Galton and John Antrobus, who was who was writing with at the time, with Alan Simpson's blessing. You know, he he didn't get involved in the writing, but he was he was um, happy that they went ahead with it. And it was one of those things where it was like you know they came up with a concept and like do I want to revisit that? And like, okay, well here's a good idea to do it. And the play it toured. It had some success as far as I can tell. Now I I've read a bit of a plot. Uh, synopsis of it and it's quite a nice setup so it's set in the present day as in 2005 yeah and harold turns up at the old house an old man now and there's a woman there from the national trust because the building is now it's been kept as right the old rag and bone yard as a national trust property of this old profession (sighs) and so he goes there to visit and she doesn't know who he is and so she's just telling the history and then Albert's around there. He's haunting the place. Albert's dead and he's haunting right, the place. Right, okay. And it transpires that Harold killed Albert <laughs> many years ago and ran away to South America. And so like 30 years later, he's come back and Albert is haunting the place. 
And so then there's loads of flashbacks where it's telling stories from their life, but all new material, not just recycling stuff from the shows. It kind of all wraps up in a kind of nice way. I I don't know exactly what happens, but I suspect that we don't find out that Harold brutally murdered his father in cold blood. I suspect there (laughs) was something more to it than that. Um, And it's also, I've heard it said, like, this is a definite end to the Steptoe story. So my guess is they that Harold dies at the end as well, and like they sort of like they're dead together, haunting mm, okay. Steptoe yeah, Yard or something. Stuck there with him for the rest of time. Yeah, yeah. Which it sounds like a really nice kind of just finish to it. I I saw a clip of it. There was I found YouTube. There's like a just a couple of clips because it's not been released on DVD or anything. Mm-hmm. A few minutes of it, and the actors do a really good job imbuing the characters that we know and love, but not trying too hard just to do an impression. And I want to compare and contrast that to something else that was made in 2016. I don't know if you know about this, but the BBC did a, a sort of lost episodes of comedy thing where they remade some uh, old comedy stuff. Yes. They made a lot of, uh, of re- remade some Hancocks, didn't they? They re- Well, they did a load of Hancocks for radio, which were like lost episodes that didn't exist mm. anymore with Kevin McNally. And then they did That's one right. for TV as well. For TV. Yes. I've, I've seen the Hancock one. Oh, yeah. They did a Steptoson one as well. And it's a remake of an episode called The Winter's Tale. And it's basically word for word. The script is exactly the same. And because of that, you can really see how much performance matters. Because this is one of the worst things I've ever watched. (laughs) (laughs) It really is terrible. It's worth seeing just to believe it. Who who play the characters? I don't... No, I won't shame them. I don't know their names, to be perfectly honest with you, because they're not, like, famous known actors. Right. Okay. And I don't know how much to blame them. It's, it feels like it's really lacking direction to the point where I looked up the director to see like, who the hell is this? And he's got a long pedigree of sitcom directing for like 20 years. So I don't know. I mean, the, the guy playing Harold particularly is just at one level constantly. There's no, yeah. there's no change Something. in what you do at all. And it's just, it's just like he's angry all the time. And so you don't get any interplay between the characters. The guy playing Albert is a bit better, I think, and it, it it does feel a little bit kind of just doing an impression, you know. It's, I don't know, it just doesn't work. It and... must be impossible not to. Can you imagine being told you oh, play yeah, Albert yeah, Stepto yeah, and yeah. you're just going to do an impression? Yeah. It's hard, and like I say, I think Wilfred Bramble, just his face and his voice and what he could do with mm. it is just, he was a grotesque. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to mimic that. And the fact that he's like five foot six or something and, and so skinny, it all just yeah. adds to that character and the, the like little and large dynamic between them and all that. You, you can't fake that. It's just perfectly cast. And, but this, yeah, this, this remake they did in 2016, it is, it's worth seeing just to, because you can't believe it, it could be done that badly. And also, they show the audience. So there's definitely a studio audience there. Yeah. But I don't know if they were just completely silent or what, because the laughter that they put on the thing is canned laughter and not good canned laughter either. It's And and it loses so much because of that. Like, it's just because... I can't can't state how bad it is. (laughs) It was unbelievable. (laughs) To say it's exactly the same script. Although, a couple of interesting notes about exactly the same script. I was watching for a couple of things because there was a bit where Albert is flicking through a magazine and he's looking for something. Yeah. And in, in the original version, he's like looking for it a little bit too long. And, and Harold kind of goes, come on, it's somewhere in the middle there. And then he finds it and he does it. <laughs> yeah. That's not in the new bit. I don't think that was in the script. Yeah, I think that was, that was him. Script. That was just, he'd forgotten his line. Yeah. And there's also a bit where Albert says something about 
we're the only white people in the street anymore, which he says all the time, stuff like that. And not in the remake, but in the original, Harold uh, says, that's because you drove them away. So I don't know if that's just Harry H. Corbett throwing his own little <laughs> bit into that. because Well, if you said that you said that Galton and Simpson were very forensic with their scripts, would they be allowed yeah. to improvise like that? <sighs> I mean, it might have just come through in rehearsal and were given the okay, yeah. you know, but... Yeah. No, it seems like generally they weren't encouraged to improvise. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't. In there. So just to kind of wrap up the whole thing, you know, um, Harry H. Corbett died when he was only 57 of a heart attack. He'd, mm. he'd already had a heart attack before that. It's um, So was that just hard living? I know, I know we've talked about Wilfred Bramble being the drinker, but was, yeah. you know, was he a, was he a smoker? And... I think he smoked like hundreds of guys a day. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he, was a, he was a heavy smoker, yeah. The last thing I've seen him in, and it, I've only seen a little clip of it because I don't think it's available, um, a sitcom called Grundy, made in 1980, which was about him. And it's only like five years after you've seen him in Steptoe, but he's not trying to look younger anymore. He's 55 mm. years old. He's, he looks it. And it really works for him. I, I've only seen this one little clip, and who knows if the show is any good, but you can see him aging out. And you can see yeah. him playing older characters and and he, he looks different enough and he would be different enough to Steptoe that he'd be able to escape from it, I think. Right. And it, it's a shame that we didn't get to see him in kind of his later So maybe years. that was finally the time he could escape when he could become an older man. And I think that probably could have done it, yeah. And it never yeah. happened. Wilfred Bramble, I think, was all but retired uh, by that point. He died a few years later. Cancer, I think it was. But, you know, he was a fairly old fella by that point and he always looked older yeah. than he was anyway. So, you know... It's kind of a shame that neither of them escaped it, but some things well, are so big. As you said, you know, maybe particularly for Wilfred Bramble, but perhaps for both, you know, they were jobbing actors and, you know, they were set for life, weren't they? It's It, it may be in hindsight not what they wanted, but you, you get your gig, you know, you get your paying gig and it's there for 12 years. That's not to be sniffed at. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, they did all right out of it, money-wise. They certainly got a nice house out of it and all that. So so I think, you know, we've, uh, we, you know, we've tackled one of the sort of defining early sitcoms there. Uh, we've we've talked a lot. <laughs> we've talked about um, a lot about the influence that it's had on on other things. Yeah. And in other episodes we're going to talk about we're going to talk about lots of different uh, British sitcoms from lots of different eras. But I think we will constantly be comparing not mm. to, not specifically to Steptoe, but to those early that first wave of sitcoms and yeah. and what influence they've had. And I'm I'm pretty sure. Well, I mean, we're not going to cover another episode of Steptoe and Son, but I'm pretty sure this is not the last time we'll talk about it. No, no. And I, I, I'm I'm looking forward to jumping around all over the place and 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 jumping from to the '90s and seeing something else mm. and, and putting it in a different context and stuff like that. I think we will be referring back to the forebears. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, for the for people listening, if you want to give us some feedback, that would be very welcome. So you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BritComPod, BritComPod. Uh, so let us know what you thought, and uh, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.